From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. How many kids can say they knew at the age of nine they wanted to conduct? Our guest Marin Alshop did, but she was told girls don't become conductors. After facing all sorts of rejections, she became the first woman to lead a major American orchestra, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. There's a new documentary about her called The Conductor. Also, a search for life in the aftershocks of death. We hear from Ocean Vuong. His new collection of poems is about his mother's death. His acclaimed novel, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, was based on his early life as a Vietnamese immigrant raised by his single mother who couldn't read and worked in a nail salon for 25 years. Later, John Powers reviews the HBO Max series Tokyo Vice. Here's some of the things that were said about my guest, Marin Alsop, early in her career when she fought to be accepted as a conductor. These are quotes from fellow conductors who found it too much of a stretch to take a female conductor seriously. Here goes. A sweet girl on the podium can make one's thoughts drift towards something else. For me, seeing a woman at the podium, it's not my cup of tea. This quote gets right to the point. I don't really like women conductors. Alsop became the first woman to lead a major American orchestra in 2007 when she became the music director of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, a position she held for 14 years. There were other firsts, including first woman to be the principal conductor of the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra in England and the Sao Paulo State Symphony Orchestra in Brazil, and the first and only conductor to receive a MacArthur Fellowship, the so-called Genius Award. Her mentor was Leonard Bernstein, and like Bernstein, her passion for music is wide-ranging, from the standard repertoire to symphonic jazz compositions, film scores, and contemporary works. She's currently the principal conductor of the ORF Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra, making her the first woman to ever lead a Viennese orchestra. She's the subject of the new documentary, The Conductor. It's streaming on the PBS website and on several other streaming platforms. Marin Alsop, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's been too long. Congratulations on this new documentary. It's terrific. Oh, thanks so much. I, I want to start on a very sober note. Um, and I should mention that we're recording this on March 22nd, and we're running it later than that. And you and I don't know what will have happened in Ukraine in the interim. But I want to start with a performance that you conducted of the Ukrainian anthem, uh, with the Orchestra de Paris in, I believe, early March. Uh, what would you say about this piece musically? You know, it's. I think uh, anthems are strange beasts in a way because they're not necessarily reflective of the culture from which they emanate, but they have a certain uh, nobility. And I think this is rather, it, it, the sensibility about it is rather somber nobility, and I think as far as anthems go, it's it's quite engaging. And, of course, emotionally, performing this in that moment uh, was extremely moving. And the whole audience immediately stood up, and the orchestra remained standing, and one of the musicians said a, a few words before we played. And I, I think, you know, every concert I've done since then, we've tried to include 
some kind of reference to the crisis uh, that's that's occurring in Ukraine. So here's my guest, Marin Alsop, conducting the Orchestra de Paris in the Ukrainian national anthem. With my guest Marin Alsop conducting the Orchestra de Paris in the Ukrainian national anthem. Um, you are the conductor now of the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra, and I'm wondering if the members of that orchestra are very concerned about the possibility of a wider war in Europe. Oh, it's a, a huge concern. I was just uh, in Vienna um, these last two weeks and uh, you know the conflict is is close. I mean, the border is it is just you know a hundred kilometers. It's not far at all, and many of my musicians in the orchestra were taking in refugees and trying to open their homes and or trying to get supplies there. So everybody's deeply engaged, deeply worried. You're still the only woman who has been the conductor of a major American orchestra. Women have made breakthroughs in so many different professions over the years. Why has it been so slow for conductors? Well, I have to um, I have to jump in here because there has been a recent appointment just within the last couple months of my dear friend Natalie Stutzmann, French conductor, who will now head uh, the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. So uh, at least there is now a woman in in the top twenty five. Orchestras, um, they there will still be no American now in the top, but but I you know I'm I'm really thrilled that she was just recently appointed. But I think it almost highlights the fact that progress is very slow and sporadic, and there doesn't seem to be a real progression to the top in terms of this industry, um, which is something I hope we can we can see change in the next decade or so. So 
you wanted to be a conductor ever since you were, what, seven or nine, was it? <laughs> yeah, no, it was nine. Nine. Okay. It was nine. I don't know if that makes much difference, but no, I was oh, nine. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the reasons why was because you saw, the, you know, Leonard Bernstein, Young People's Orchestra, in which he would talk to the audience, which was made up of children and their parents, and describe to them what was happening in the music before he actually played it. Um, but you were told, you know, you kept getting rejected from conducting programs because you were told ever since you were a child that women aren't conductors. So let's start there. When you were a child, did anyone ever explain why women aren't conductors? I received some conflicting uh, information on this. So after I, my dad took me to see Bernstein conduct, and I was so, I was so overwhelmed and and enamored and and taken aback by him. Uh, not just the conducting. I think the conducting was sort of the least of it. It was the way he spoke to us in the audience, his enthusiasm for the music, the fact that he was jumping around and not getting yelled at. I really liked that part too. <laughs> you know, for me, classical music was already a little bit a little bit too rule oriented. But I said to my dad, oh, I want to be the conductor. Look, look at what a great time this guy is having. And my dad said, absolutely, wonderful. And then I went and told my violin teacher who I was studying with at Juilliard pre-college. And, and she explained to me that, look, conductors are older. And I, you know, I thought to myself, okay, well, I know that that'll change. And she said, and girls don't do that. Or maybe she said girls can't do that. Yeah, it was, it was even more deadly, I think. <laughs> girls can't do that. And I, I'd never heard a phrase like that. You know, it never occurred to me that there was something that girls couldn't do. Um, and I went home that night and I told my parents and, oh, my mother was so mad. I mean, she was hopping mad. I, it, she... My mother said, you can do anything you want to do. You can be anything you want to be. That's ridiculous. We should sue them. You know, <laughs> my mother was like crazy. And my father, he, I think he must have gone out that afternoon. And he, he came back because when I came down for breakfast the next morning, there was a long wooden box at my place. And I opened it up and he had filled it with batons. And so from my parents, I got the message, you can do, you can be whatever you want. And your parents, your parents were musicians. Yeah, my parents were both, both professional classical musicians, yeah. And I don't know if they were yet in this position, but your father became the concertmaster at the New York City Ballet Orchestra, and your mother was a cellist in the orchestra, um, and she also was a cellist for uh, uh, Radio City Music Hall. <laughs> well, interesting careers that they each had. But anyways, they were really accomplished musicians. So they really un understood the world of classical music and what an offense this was to you. You applied to be in the conducting program at Juilliard several times, and you had studied at Juilliard ever since you were seven. Um, but you kept re getting rejected from the conducting program. And once you were told that you'd never be a conductor and that your muscles had atrophied. Yeah, I think I was 20, 21 or 22. Um, what do you think they meant, whoever said this? Well, I, you know, I think I have to give, give some background to this because, you know, I really had no experience as a conductor. So 
I think they were reacting partly to my my naivete, my my lack of um, skills. Yet all these things, I don't think it, this was strictly gender based. Um, and also, there was the there was the feeling that if you couldn't reduce a score at the piano, uh, that you could never be a, a conductor. And that's what this particular professor was reacting to. I I did the audition. I got very far, and then I, I had to um, I had to play a, from a Mahler score at the piano, and they were all transposing. Horns and you know piano wasn't my instrument. I played the violin, and so it was pretty bad. And that's when he said, "You'll never be a conductor because all of your muscles have atrophied." And I thought, you know, I play the violin, which enables me to speak to the majority of the orchestra, because I understand what it feels like. I know what it is to be a string player. I know what the sound is, and you know, of course, the it, it's really changed over the years and. Although it was felt you had to be a pianist um, to be a conductor, it's now really changed, and and string players I think are are really coming into their own as conductors. So I I do want to say that I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I had no experience. But I was a little bit um, the first time I applied to Juilliard, I had just graduated with my master's in violin performance, and I got a form letter saying that my academic credentials didn't meet their standards. <laughs> so I, I stormed into the president's office on that one. And, um, you know, I, I kept trying. I, I tried two more times. And uh, I have to say very recently, um, just last year, uh, when I was awarded an honorary doctorate from Juilliard, I, I read my final rejection letter. Um, and the students really appreciated it. Oh, can you paraphrase some of that for us? Oh, it really says that, you know, we're we're sorry to inform you that um, our committee was unable to consider your application and we're refunding your $35. And, uh, you know, we wish you good luck. <laughs> Something like that. But, but you know, it, it, you have to, it, it's, it's easy, of course, now to, to have some distance on it. But in the moment, I was, I was really devastated because it felt that everywhere I turned, every door was just closed. And that's what really prompted me to say, well, if every door is closed, I just have to build my own house. So I just got all of my friends together, all my friends from String Fever, my swing band, and friends from Juilliard, and friends that I had met gigging around New York. And I said, would you guys come and start an orchestra with me? And that's how we started the wonderful Concordia Chamber Orchestra. My guest is conductor Marin Alsop. There's a new documentary about her called The Conductor. It's streaming on the PBS website and other streaming platforms. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. And John Powers will review the new HBO Max crime drama series, Tokyo Vice. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with conductor Marin Alsop. There's a new documentary about her called The Conductor, which is streaming now on the PBS website and on other streaming platforms as well. She is now the chief conductor of the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra, the former conductor of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and the Sao Paulo Orchestra, and she's conducted orchestras on a guest basis around the world. 
Leonard Bernstein was a pretty flashy conductor, and it was always fun to like watch him because it's like he was, you know, almost like dancing on on stage. Um, did he encourage you to be that way? Oh gosh, no. He would say, I mean, he was funny though. He would say, "Look, don't imitate me, but do it like this." <laughs> you know? So he would be like, "Okay, wait a minute. What are you saying to me?" But I, I mean, I. You know, we can all kind of do our, our Lenny imitations, but that's all they are. They're imitations. I mean, he, the most important thing he taught me is be yourself, be authentic, be genuine. And, you know, when he was dancing around and jumping and doing the shoulder shrugs, this was totally him. It wasn't, he wasn't being imitative. He wasn't being derivative. He wasn't putting on a show. He was just digging what he was doing, and that was being the messenger of the composer. And that's what he taught us always, you know, that that's our first responsibility. Not, not to go up on the podium and be watched, but really to get the message of the composer across. Well, you know, in terms of like authenticity and who you are, there's who you are musically, and then there's also who you are. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Yes, yeah, who you are outside of music. And we are introduced to your wife in the documentary about you. Were you like in the closet when you were starting to conduct? Because, you know, it was difficult enough that you were a woman, but to be a lesbian and a conductor, that might have been like really a bridge too far for like so many orchestras. Well, I think I had so many, I think I had so many, um, what, what would I call them, strikes against me. I, I mean, of course, I was young, I was a woman, and I was American. That was already like, you know, three strikes and you're out. And then, you know, being gay and, and uh, you know, feeling that I didn't, I didn't really fit in anywhere. You know, I, I think I had so many, so many things to carry that I just put a backpack on and said, okay, just fill it up and let's go. I, I want to talk a little bit more about working with Bernstein. Um, you know, there's a couple of clips with you working with him in the Tanglewood days when you were, had your fellowship at Tanglewood, when you were studying conducting. And he seems so affectionate toward you. And you can see that not only in the look on his face, but he's he's kind of putting his hand on your shoulder and I think putting his arm, you know, his arm around you at one point. And you can tell that, like, he likes you, he feels this bond with you, he's encouraging you. And I was watching that with two sets of eyes, one thinking, oh, he's really encouraging her. And the other thinking, if this was today, he could be accused of being, you know, inappropriate in touching you without, you know, asking your permission first. So um, are you very self-conscious now about how you touch people in the orchestras you conduct? And I'm wondering, too, if Europe has the same kind of uh, sensitivities that America has now. You know, I think I think that it's it's always a good idea to to try to to be respectful and 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 remember that not everyone is open to to being touched to being you know to having that physical contact and I, while of course i worry that the pendulum will swing too far the other way but that's a natural i think that's a natural cycle that that happens um i you know i've been known to um kind of tie up my students when you know I, okay that doesn't sound right but you know when <laughs> when they're um 
when their their left arm is doing something weird. Sometimes I'll I'll tie it to their and I've really thought twice about doing that, you know, in the last few years. And and before I tie up one of my students, I ask them, is it okay? Always, you know. Um, but I think for conducting, you know, it it's so much about um, being able to have independence of hands and your posture and if they're nodding or if they're bending or if their knees are bent, you know, you have to bring some awareness to these different habits. And sometimes the only way to do that really is by, by touching the, the person, uh, you know, on the knees, look, come on, your knees keep bending here. Do you feel it? Do you see that? Um, and, but of course we have video also. And I say, come on, watch the video. And, and I, I do a lot more, um, come on, watch the video than I do uh, touching anymore. But I was never as affectionate as Leonard Bernstein. I don't know another human being who is that affectionate. I'm interested in hearing more about why you'd want to tie somebody's hand up. (laughs) What were they doing wrong that you wanted to correct? What happens is that since we're symmetrical beings, when, when one does something with one's right hand, there's a natural tendency to do it the exact same Uh, gesture in opposition. So it becomes a mirror image. It's like when you're walking and you move your arms. So it's very difficult to gain independence of the left hand. But as a conductor, you really need that because you need to have, you're losing 50% of your potential vocabulary otherwise, because you're saying the same thing with both hands, which is unnecessary. So, um, Sometimes I I ask them, you know, to put their left hand behind their back, put it in their pocket. Sometimes some people really, that still doesn't stop it, you know. And so then we, you know, we we loosely tie them up. You know, we don't really, it's, they they can always escape easily. And, uh, or, or, you know, I've, I've had moments where I've put a blindfold over a conductor's eyes because, they're so distracted by what they're seeing that they're unable to focus. And sometimes that can bring a focus to them. Um, you know, and then I have some weights that they can try to use, you know, like around their wrist. You, you, you hook the one pound weight on to feel the, feel the weight of the sound. So we have a lot of, we do a lot of fun things, I have to say. Do other conductors who teach do that kind of stuff? I have no idea. This is stuff you you came up with yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these these are these are all techniques that I used on myself as I was trying to develop. You know, I'd watch myself on the video and I'd say, "Oh, why why can't I feel that sound? You know, I I can't feel the weight of the sound. You know, and then I would then I would grab you know a a, a bag of rice and try to conduct holding that bag of rice so that I could feel the weight, those kinds of things. And conducting is so much about imagining the feeling of something and conveying that. Uh, so it's really, really important to, to be constantly pushing ourselves toward that. Oh, it's really interesting. Marin Alsop, it has just been great to talk with you again. Thank you so much, and thank you for your music. Oh, my pleasure. Great to speak with you again, too. Marin Alsop is currently the principal conductor of the ORF Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra. The new documentary about her is called The Conductor. It's streaming on the PBS website and on several other streaming platforms. 
In the new series, Tokyo Vice, Ansel Elgort stars as Jake Adelstein, a young crime reporter in Japan. The series premiered Thursday on HBO Max. Based on Adelstein's best-selling memoir, it offers its hero and us a trip into Tokyo's criminal underworld. Our critic at large, John Power, says it's a trip you'll want to take. I come from small-town Iowa, which may be why I've always been drawn to stories about men and women seeking their fortune in the big city. Whether it's Pip in Great Expectations or Peggy in Mad Men, there's something deeply satisfying about watching heroes learn the unwritten rules of urban life and letting us learn them too. The rules are gnarlier than usual in Tokyo Vice, a new HBO Max drama based on the memoir of the same title by Jake Adelstein. Adapted for TV by Adelstein's childhood friend J.T. Rogers, who wrote the Tony-winning play Oslo, this eight-part series tells the tale of an American crime reporter who intends to take Japanese journalism by storm, but first must learn how to navigate the churning opacity of 1990s Tokyo. In his most appealing work to date, Ansel Elgort stars as Jake, a good-humored, if cocksure Missourian, whose excellent Japanese enables him to become the first foreign reporter ever hired by Japan's biggest newspaper. Yet this is hidebound Japan, and he soon learns that the paper doesn't want him to be Woodward or Bernstein. They want him to do what Japanese crime reporters do, rewrite police press releases and avoid asking questions that might rock the boat. But Jake's a born boat rocker, and even though chastened by having his work endlessly rejected by his editor, she's played by Rinko Kikuchi, he can't resist asking about the guy who's knifed to death on the bridge, or the salaryman who sets himself afire on the street. Wandering the dark alleys of Kabukicho, Tokyo's Simi Entertainment District, he befriends Samantha, an American bar hostess with a past, played by Rachel Keller, and a volatile yakuza named Sato, that sleek Kasamatsu show, who doesn't quite fit into his crime organization. Their exploits serve as even riskier counterpoints to Jake's own. For all his drive, Jake keeps floundering until he allies himself with a frustrated police detective, Katagiri Hiroto, played with downbeat charisma by Japanese star Ken Watanabe, who you may know from The Last Samurai and Memoirs of a Geisha. Annoyed by his department's lack of crime-fighting ambition, Detective Katagiri becomes his source and mentor. Here, Jake shows Katagiri a matchbook and asks if he knows the company it refers to. Where did you get this? I witnessed a man light himself on fire with them. I already interviewed his wife. He was being threatened. Another man was stabbed for the same reason. A loan sharking business, right? Yeah, but I cannot pursue it. Why? It's complicated. complicated. It is Yakuza business. The first thing to be said about Tokyo Vice is that it's exceedingly pleasurable to watch. The pilot was made by Michael Mann, who's always known how to capture the treacherous seductiveness of cities, be it the South Beach of Miami Vice or the L.A. of Collateral. Setting the visual template... Man's restlessly sharp eye captures Tokyo's intriguing swirl, from its shadowy back streets and glamorous watering holes to the teasing neon that paints the night. If you're unfamiliar with Japanese organized crime, Tokyo Vice makes a good introduction to the Yakuza, starting with the spectacular tattoos the series is overly addicted to showing. 
We see their shakedown tactics, finger-chopping violence, and strutting panache. We see their hierarchical structure based on samurai notions of loyalty and honor. And in a larger sense, we see how the Yakuza have insinuated themselves into every level of 90s Japan, from hostess bars to banking to the decision-making of the authorities who will do anything to avoid gang war. Seasoned with a bit of nudity and bloodshed, that's the vice part of Tokyo Vice. Personally, I'm more interested in the Tokyo part, when Jake and friends usher us into a deeply entrenched culture far different to our own. It's not simply that 90s Japan is bursting with unabashed sexism and xenophobia. There's such a premium on keeping the surface of life placid that Jake can't even use the word murder when writing of a man who's been knifed to death. As a cop patiently explains to him, there is no murder in Japan, meaning the cops in the media prefer bland talk about unexplained deaths. Although Tokyo Vice is not wholly innocent of exoticism and cliché, the series does a nifty job of taking us around Tokyo, back during the heyday of the Yakuza. And as it slowly unfolds its story, you sense the menace that could at any moment claim Jake, Samantha, Sato, or Katagiri. You see, while those in power may say there's no murder in Japan, that doesn't mean some bad guy won't kill you. John Powers reviewed Tokyo Vice. Coming up, we hear from writer Ocean Vuong. His acclaimed novel, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, was based on his life. He was born in Vietnam in 1988 and raised in the U.S. by his single mother, who could barely speak English and couldn't read. He was marginalized by being an immigrant, poor, and gay. He has a new poetry collection about the aftershocks of his mother's death. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Our guest today, Ocean Vuong, is the author of the critically acclaimed novel On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, based on his own experiences growing up in Connecticut, marginalized as a Vietnamese immigrant, poor, and gay. The book became a bestseller in 2019, the year he also received a MacArthur Grant, also known as the Genius Grant, and the year his mother died. He has a new collection of poems related to her death called Time is a Mother. He spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley. Here's Tanya. What does it mean to write to a mother who will never read it? That's one of the central questions of Ocean Bong's 2019 novel, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. The book is a work of fiction and also autobiographical, a letter to Bong's mother, Rose, who never learned to read. Rose was an immigrant from Vietnam who worked at a nail salon for 25 years. She died in 2019 from breast cancer the same year the novel was released. Vong's newest book, Time is a Mother, is a searing book of poetry that he calls a search for life after the death of his mother. And Ocean Vong joins us now. Welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much, Tanya. It's a deep pleasure to be here. Ocean, my condolences on the loss of your mother. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, it, it's the wound that I am told uh, will never heal. And um, three years out, I, I don't expect it to heal anytime soon. The last time you were on a book tour, your mother was ill, but well enough to marvel in, in your success. How are you experiencing the release of this poetry collection with her absence? Oh, you know, you, you realize that uh, grief is perhaps the last and final translation of love. And uh, I think, you know, this is the last act 
of, of loving someone and, and you realize that it, it will never end. You, you get to do this, um, to, to translate this last act of love for the rest of your life. And so, you know, it, it's, it's really, uh, her absence is felt every day, but because I'm, I'm becoming an author again in another book, um, it's, it's doubly felt. And ever since I lost her, I felt that my life has been lived in only two days, if that makes any sense, you know. Um, there's the today, where she is not here, and then the vast and endless yesterday, where she was, even though it's been three years since, how many months and days, but I only see it in, with one demarcation, two days, today without my mother and yesterday when she was alive. That's all I see. it. That's, all, that's how I see my life now. This is the only book you've written that you say you are proud of because you compromise nothing. Why? When I lost my mother, I thought, there's no point. Everything I've done, I've done for her. I went to school for her. She gave me no pressure, you know, and, and it's important for me to say this because, you know, there's a stereotype of the Asian tiger mom. My mother was never such a mother. She said, whatever you want to do, as long as you're happy, you can do it. And worse comes to worse. She points to the desk. She works in a nail salon. She points to the desk beside her. There's always an empty desk in the salon. She says, you can sit down right here and then we'll work together. So I had ultimate freedom to explore. And I think for me, um, you know, th that freedom really uh, was, was all to serve her. It was how do I help my mother get out of the projects? That every immigrant has that dream. And I realized that I was writing with... Um, various insecurities or fears, you know, even the, with all of my books, every writer would tell you that they're writing what they want. But I think, you know, only when their mother passes away do they realize, oh, wait a minute, there's another level of freedom that I don't know. And and the, the, the fork in the road for me was either I stop doing it altogether or I start doing whatever I wanted. And I didn't know that I was writing uh, for, for, for beyond myself or elsewhere until she passed and I started to see pleasure again. You know, I became a child again. You lose your mother and you lose your North Star, at least for me. And I became such a child and like any child, I look at the blank page and I said, how do I play? Where do I locate pleasure? And the only place I could look to was the poems, because it was the only place I found linguistic pleasure. This latest collection, it is all about you. You are fully there. If those uh, who have read your previous works um, think back, they can see this so clearly in reading Time as a Mother. Can I have you read an excerpt from uh, the first page of Beautiful Short Loser? Beautiful Short Loser. Stand back, I'm a loser on a winning streak. I got your wedding dress on backward, playing air guitar in these streets. I taste my mouth the most, and what a blessing. 
The most normal things about me are my shoulders. You've been warned. Where I'm from, it's only midnight for a second, and the trees look like grandfathers laughing in the rain. For as long as I can remember, I've had a preference for mediocre bodies, including this one. How come the past tense is always longer? Is the memory of a song the shadow of a sound, or is that too much? Sometimes, when I can't sleep, I imagine Van Gogh singing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah into his cut ear and feeling peace. When you say that you feel like a child again, I'm thinking back to something that you you said previously, that writing fully about yourself is both a death and a celebration. Is that what you mean? What do you mean exactly by that? You know, every book I've written around this time, I look at the pages and I think, oh, I could have done that better. I could have tightened that sentence. That comma should have been delayed. Uh, This chapter should have, you know, had a different speed to it. And, And that's a sign of growth. I tell my students this. I say, if you look at what you've written months ago or years ago and you're not happy with it, then congrats, you've grown. <laughs> you shouldn't be sad, you should be happy. Um, and I've always felt that with my other books. And this one, for some reason, I didn't feel that. I didn't have the same regrets, the same editorial, uh, 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 pesky mind in my head. And then I thought, oh God, this is, must be a plateau. This must be a kind of death, you know. But on the other hand, is the celebration of finally putting all of myself in my work. You know, my friends say, you're so funny, but your work is, is so sad. And, and so this book, this last book here, I see all of my humor, you know, my, 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 my mischievousness, uh, uh, my tongue-in-cheek expression, even amongst the great loss. Uh, I said, there, there he is. He's finally here. Um, and, and maybe this is it for him, you know? So it's, it's a double-edged sword, as they say. Ocean, I want to go back to the foundation of your understanding of language. You and your family moved from Vietnam to Connecticut when you were two, Glastonbury, just outside of Hartford. And you write that you grew up around Vietnamese women, your mom and your grandmother, who used stories as portals. What did that storytelling look like in the day-to-day? What I learned, and I didn't realize then until, you know, what I realize now was that I was at the seat of master storytellers. I was receiving a master class, and it was in no institution. And what I mean by that is that when, in my case, these three women, when a woman decides to leave their country, something quite miraculous, in my opinion, happens in that they have to decide what to take out and leave behind in the archive of their self and what to salvage and carry forth because the memory is a limited archive. And they've made decisions. What stories do I leave behind? What stories do I carry across borders and trepidations in order to uh, lend and gift to my children and grandchildren? 
And by the time I receive these stories, and sometimes they're folklore, sometimes they're personal stories, but all of them were already beautifully crafted through hundreds of retellings. My grandmother knew when to pause, when to grow anticipation, what part of the scene to describe, what part to speed up through exposition. And we were all just enraptured by uh, what she was able to do. And, and I think it, it, it made me understand then, you know, even more so, um, uh, um, you know, what I would later uh, come to know intellectually, which is that nobody survives by accident. Refugees and immigrants survive because they're innovative and creative, Survival is a creative act. You know, you stitching, you know, money in, in the insides of jackets, right? I mean, all of these things. And we often see the refugee as a victim or a passive condition who, who is pleading for universal help and aid. But in fact, the refugee is an incredibly creative artist. I would even go as far as to say that my elders and many elders around the world who survive geopolitical violence are survival artists. What can you tell us about your mother's life in Vietnam and what led her to coming to the U.S.? You know, so much of her life is a mystery to me. And, you know, she didn't give me everything. And I think which is why I wrote fiction to kind of portray her to myself, um, but a different version of her. But I know the context was that, you know, she was a mixed-race child and there was um, Operation Second Chance brought forth by uh, Senator John McCain to kind of uh, bring back all of the children of veterans um, who were left there after the initial Operation Baby Lift. And so it was a way of, of, of bringing the remnants, if you will, um, to America. And, you know, she took advantage of that. And because of that, all seven of us came over. Your mom could not read, but she taught you. She taught you to read other languages like body language and facial expressions. And she was delighted to see the faces of, of white people at your book tour events watching you read poetry what was it that she was delighting in? It was hard. It was a mix. It was a very mixed feeling for me to to, to see her and hear her say that. Because I told, her, I said, "Ma, that can't be. That can't be what winning looks like. This can't be the mountaintop. You know, there must be more to this." And so that was me being the millennial, you know, the academic, you know, saying that, that, that there should be more to, to affirm what we do than, than a white audience, white audience's approval. And the next day I was, I was with her and I realized watching her work in the nail salon and you, and you watch her through the day and you watch the other women at the pedicure chair and you realize that their faces are never lifted they can't. To do their work, they have to lower their face. And their clients are most likely uh, older white women, sometimes, you know, white men. And particularly in this neighborhood, it was predominantly white folks. And it, it made sense to me then. And I said, oh, my God. What she does is artful. 
It takes aesthetic skill and technique, and no one has ever clapped for her. How many pedicures have she done? You know, in, in, in ways that take, take, to me, take so much more skill than a poem. But nobody has ever stood up and had clapped for her. I'm sorry. And so to, to see her, I felt so foolish for questioning her victory. But that's also what it's like, you know, to to be from one generation to another. It's like, I, you know, I, I regretted questioning what she saw was victory because I had a different scale. And her scale was that she, she never knew what it's like to be applauded. And they were applauding for her. You know, they looked at her and they said, you, you made this poet. You made something that we value. You're an artist too. And I think what I, what, what I learned that day was that we were always two artists, you know? It's just that the culture valued one more so than the other. But when after that day, everything was equal to me. Everything collapsed. And I looked at my mother and I said, I come from a family of artists. You've spoken quite a bit about this invisibility that Asian people experience in this country. How do you reconcile, though, that over the years, and really as you lay out for us throughout your life, you are visible and you people recognize you. How does it feel as an individual to be seen? It's challenging for me because I'm, I'm, an, I'm an introvert and I didn't want to be known in this way. Um, I thought that writing a book, your book would live in the world and you get to hide. One of my heroes is Emily Dickinson, and I love her work, but I also, what I love about her is her sort of disobedience to the, to the world that demanded her to be seen. And she chose her own privacy and her own dignity. And it's not something I've been able to do, you know, so much of being a, a writer in the modern world is publicity and being out in the open. And it's okay, I've made peace with it to a certain extent, but it's not something I ever envisioned. And it's hard because, you know, on one hand, you're very visible, and on another, you know, you're only visible in context, right? So I'm Ocean Vong when there's a stage, when there's an event, an interview. Um, but when I'm out you know, in the world, um, I'm, I'm another Asian person, you know, when I, when I go sign up to get my ID at the school I work at, you know, the woman asked me if I spoke English, right, and then, so you, you, all of a sudden, this big idea of this, uh, quote-unquote, famous writer collapses in an instant, and you're just on your knees again, and you're back, standing with your mother as a child, you know, in the convenience store or the mall at Nordstrom. And the woman comes to my mother, picks up, you know, the perfume from my mother's hand and says, ma'am, did you check the price? You know, and, and it's just like, and I, my mother just put it down and walks away. You know, it's just, we ran out of there, you know. And so all of a sudden it's kind of like that. And I realized in, in moments like that, I haven't gone very far at all, haven't I? Ocean Wong, thank you so much. 
Thank you, Tanya. It's been an incredible, incredible experience. And thank you for your capacious questions and your deep respect for the subject. Ocean Vuong spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley. Vuong's new poetry collection is called Time is a Mother. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. I'm Terry Gross.